Hello, and welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. I'm Professor Drew Dawson of the University of Miami School of Law and the ABI Robert M. Zimmerman Resident Scholar for the spring of 2017. Today, I'll be talking with Professor Matthew Bruckner, an assistant professor of law at Howard University, where he teaches bankruptcy, contracts, and consumer finance, among other business and commercial law courses. Professor Bruckner's research on bankruptcy in the higher education sector has been extremely important and timely given the wave of distress hitting many higher educational institutions. Professor Bruckner's article, Bankrupting Higher Education, will soon be published in the American Bankruptcy Law Journal, and his most recent article, Higher Ed Do Not Resuscitate Orders, is now available on the Social Science Research Network. Links to both articles are available in the ABI newsroom. Matt, thank you for joining me today. Drew, thanks for having me. So we've seen more institutions of higher education closing their doors and just shutting down. What's happening in this sector? So yeah, that's right. About a little over 700 colleges of all stripes, technical school, for-profit colleges, nonprofits, uh, and the like closed uh, just last year. And surveys of bankruptcy professionals have suggested that uh, higher education is one of the sectors they think are, are in the most financial trouble these days. Uh, and there seems to be a number of possible causes, and, and, and some of them are common issues, uh, and some of them break down by the type of entity. So, for example, I often, in my pieces, I refer to um, public colleges, private nonprofit colleges, and private for-profit colleges, uh, often just for-profits. So the public colleges seem to be struggling because of declining state funding. So uh, Louisiana, for example, um, a couple of years ago had proposed slashing their higher education financing by 82%, precipitating Louisiana State University to uh, prepare a financial exigency plan. Now, some of that was walked back, but, uh, but um, budget cuts uh, are expected um, in the future in a number of states. You know, some colleges struggle because of overexpansion. Um, so, for example, uh, Burlington uh, College uh, up in Vermont which was run by Jane Sanders, wife to presidential candidate Bernie Sanders uh, at the time, they decided that uh, the thing their college really needed to to improve was to buy uh, some prime real estate in Burlington and expand their campus. Uh, They took on uh, a lot of debt. I think the purchase was about $12 million dollars. Um, and that was that was debt funded. Uh, the expectation was they would double their enrollment once they were on this this shiny new campus on the lakefront. But it turns out the, their optimistic uh, enrollment projections were incorrect, and they needed to um, to unload this real estate. And uh, ideally, would have just unloaded the real estate and returned to their you know, their former model. Mm-hmm. But because they lacked access to bankruptcy organization, that just wasn't an option for them. Yeah, that sounds like exactly the sort of thing that bankruptcy normally deals with. We see that right with in the retail sector in particular. Overexpansion, bankruptcy provides an opportunity to reject the leases and sort of get back to like a manageable footprint. When you say there's no bankruptcy eligibility, though, where does that come from? Yeah, so I, I, should, I certainly should be clear on that. Um, so I often will say that bankruptcy organization is not available, or um, sometimes even you'll catch me saying that there's a bankruptcy ban. Uh, what I mean is that there is not a legal prohibition on a bankruptcy filing, but that if a college or university, technical school, if they file a bankruptcy petition, they immediately and irrevocably, uh, automatically lose access to Title IV funding. Now, Title IV, as some folks may know, um, is the student, the federal student loan and grant program. So it's your 
Pell Grants, your Stafford loans, your Grad Plus loans. And many institutions uh, are heavily dependent on these, uh, on this, this on Title IV funding. And without it, they just can't, uh, they can't continue. And so um, it's really more of an economic prohibition, uh, cutting off a critical source of funding than it is a legal prohibition. Okay, so it's different. It's section 109 of the Bankruptcy Code, for instance, you know, excludes certain types of entities from bankruptcy relief altogether. What you're pointing out is they're, they're effectively barred. But as you mentioned in your paper, there's something really different about these higher educational institutions because financial institutions and other institutions excluded, other types of businesses excluded under Section 109 often have some other relief available, which is not the case with the higher education. Is that right? They don't have a reorganization provision, right? So, uh, for example, banks um, or bank holding companies, which are excluded under Section 109, are typically reorganized through an FDIC receivership. But um, And so while there are other options, because it's not a legal prohibition, for example, a college can liquidate in bankruptcy, uh, and there are other options like receiverships or um, assignments for the benefits of creditors, um, there uh, does not seem to be a, another viable reorganization option. And as you said, you know, the, the type of distress that Burlington College experienced uh, seems like, you know, the sort of typical, you know, debt overhang, overexpansion sort of problem that bankruptcy can solve. Now, that doesn't mean that they can solve the problems that all colleges face. You know, for example, Sweetbriar College down in uh, Virginia their trustees, I think somewhat famously recently, um, had decided to close the college and wind things down. And although they were, they were kept open for, uh, for the time being, the reason they were closing, or the trustees wanted to close them, was because they thought that students simply did not want to come to a single-sex institution, a uh, rural institution, uh, and I, that I, I think their primary program was something like equestrian studies. Hmm. And the trustees just made the choice that like this, you know, this was more like you know, the sort of a vacuum tube or a buggy whip and, and, and bankruptcy, um, I mean, if it were available, might not have been able to solve Sweetbriar's problems. We've also seen, and most recently in, in the Marblegate decision, we saw with Education Management Corporation trying to reorganize outside of bankruptcy. And while most of the discussion of that case focused on the Trust and Denture Act, and the background of all of that was the fact that they were forced to try to reorganize outside of bankruptcy for the exact reason you mentioned, that a bankruptcy filing would have necessarily and inevitably led to a liquidation. You mentioned the paper. We talk a little bit about it. I mean, uh, the, the comparison that sort of uh, uh, comes to mind for me is Thomas Jefferson School of Law. So Thomas Jefferson, uh, that's how I got into this topic uh, in the first place, right? They defaulted on their bond obligations on their brand new law school building. They were held out by a lot of the sort of law school watchers as the type of law school that everybody expected would close. It's, you know, standalone, a competitive marketplace. And then they didn't close. Uh, right. And their um their bondholders entered into a consensual workout with them, um uh because it seemed like the you know, the best use of their uh, their brand new law school building was surprisingly right unsurprisingly right as a law school but you know there was a perhaps just because it was a smaller entity it, there were uh, it was just easier to uh, to negotiate with the, the creditor body whereas um, EDMC 
is just is is a huge institution, just like Corinthian colleges and Anthem, uh, ITT Tech, uh, and they're just much less likely to be able to use uh, sort of a consensual out of court restructuring process. So, you know, I think that's an it's an interesting difference between the um, the sort of large for profits, right? They, I mean, they're they're the most like retailers. They're, I mean, they're the most like other traditional businesses, mm-hmm. uh, and therefore, in some ways, the most likely to benefit from bankruptcy, um, which makes the sort of maybe the political case uh, that much harder for changing the law. Yeah. Now, before we move on, because in your newspaper, you draw some comparisons from healthcare, but before we move move on to the healthcare industry comparison, can you fill us in a little bit? Why Why is it exactly that Congress decided to effectively make bankruptcy unavailable for higher educational institutions? So it's not 100% clear. There is uh, there's no legislative history that accompanies the changes. Uh, what there is, or there was, uh, were a series of high-profile uh, hearings in the Senate investigating, in particular, the for-profit college industry. Uh, and there were a lot of concerns uh, expressed about profiteers opening fly-by-night institutions, defrauding their students, you know, taking their mm-hmm. tuition dollars, and then fleeing to the uh, the uh, protection of the bankruptcy courts, and that bankruptcy judges were unreasonably providing solace and shelter to these companies that had just defrauded students. So that seems to be the sort of underlying, if not sort of rationale, but the sort of uh, the feeling that was in the air at the time that colleges uh, were were fraudulent and bankruptcy judges were were sheltering them. Hmm. It's an interesting justification because oftentimes within the bankruptcy industry, we th- we realize that you know bankruptcy is a powerful tool to uh, to police against fraud, to clean up fraud. Absolutely right. Uh, an explicitly stated purpose of the United States court system is to protect against fraud, waste, and abuse. Right, and so to eliminate the oversight of the bankruptcy courts and the United States trustees and the creditors committees, which are all there to police against fraud, seems like a terrible, uh, a terrible way to solve this problem. And that's you know it's certainly uh, one of the, the primary reasons I advance in my paper for um, right, this is this is the problem that Congress wished to solve could not be solved with their proposed solution or with their actual solution. Right, and as you point out. This, uh, this provision in Title IV doesn't stop a company, a higher educational institution, from liquidating. They could file bankruptcy under Chapter 7. It just effectively prevents them from reorganizing. That's right. Uh, and as I point out in the, the new paper, Higher Ed Do Not Resuscitate Orders, there's also concerns about uh, fraud and abuse in uh, the healthcare sector, which is an enormously larger sector. So, Medicare and Medicaid combined uh, are approximately, the federal government spends approximately 14 times more each year, almost a trillion dollars a year on uh, Medicare and Medicaid support for hospitals than it spends on supporting higher education institutions. Some estimates put the amount of fraud in healthcare at about $70 billion a year, which is about the same size as the total contribution the federal government makes to support higher education institutions. And yet, if a hospital or other healthcare provider wants to reorganize in bankruptcy, they can continue to receive Medicare and Medicaid. And so, uh, the, you know, I, I use this new comparison, and I use this comparison in the new paper in part to to highlight that colleges seem to be sort of uniquely disqualified from using the bankruptcy reorganization, and that that. Hospitals and other healthcare providers, which which suffer from uh, similar problems of fraud, uh, are not uh, are not prohibited prohibited in the same way. 
It's an interesting comparison. So you have two industries, both of which have a large amount of government funding, both of which are maybe especially prone to fraud or in which we would be particularly concerned about fraud on students or fraud on patients. And yet, as you point out, you know, in the healthcare industry, Chapter 11 is available. Can you tell us some success stories in the healthcare industry that helps uh, shed some light on what bankruptcy might be able to do for failing higher educational institutions? Sure, yeah. So there is a, um, a small rural hospital in Owington, Kentucky. It's got a population of something like 11,000 people. Their, their hospital, New Horizons Health Center, um, has been on operation since the early 50s. And as a critical access hospital, meaning they, they serve predominantly a rural population and they offer uh, emergency services 24 hours a day. Uh, they, uh, they're a critical access hospital and they get extra payments from Medicare and Medicaid. But despite these additional payments, uh, they just weren't able to make a go of it. In the early 2000s, they almost went under and the USDA, um, I'm not quite sure why the USDA, um, but USDA loaned them $5.4 million. But still a few, a few years later in 2015, they, um, they entered into bankruptcy. While in bankruptcy, they continued to receive uh, Medicare and Medicaid funding, which um, was about 60% of their annual revenue. And they, uh, they used bankruptcy to shed some debt. They, they had on their schedules, they listed assets of $7.6 million and liabilities of about $12 million. And uh, they really used bankruptcy to discharge this excess debt uh, and also to sell, um, able to use bankruptcy to sell the hospital to a physician group uh, from uh, from New Jersey, because they were able to discharge their debt and cleanse their assets through bankruptcy, it facilitated the investment of this uh, this physician group. So they they bought the hospital, which provided some recovery for the for the creditors. Uh, but they also invested another million dollars in updating and modernizing the facility so that it could continue to serve the community in which it was located. And this is the kind of thing that we see bankruptcy do all the time to uh, to solve debt overhang problems, to allow facilities to to attract new investment in refurbishing those facilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just would not occur if there was this debt overhang. Now, part of the so it's an interesting comparison, and I think you can learn a lot from looking at sort of success stories in the healthcare industry and. Uh, how bankruptcy might help some institutions of higher education. A common criticism of the higher education industry is that there's just too many colleges, too many universities right now, and we're just simply need, we're just we're seeing a right sizing in the market. And that might be some justification for not needing a bankruptcy option for these institutions. How would you respond to that? Even with a bankruptcy reorganization option something in the order of 10% of acute care hospitals close every year. And in, I think in the 2000-2005 period, I saw a statistic recently that almost 20% uh, of the acute care hospitals in the United States closed. Uh, and so bankruptcy doesn't do anything to prevent hospitals from closing, uh, and nor would I think that a bankruptcy organization option would, would prevent colleges from closing. In fact, we might think the opposite is true. So, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Jay Westbrook uh, some years ago wrote a paper about about Chapter 11 that suggested that one of its primary benefits is sorting enterprises that are likely to be able to be successfully reorganized from those that cannot be. 
and uh, and their study had found that uh, of entities that get so far as to propose a plan of reorganization, most are successfully confirmed, and those that are uh, not able to con- confirm a plan are quickly sort of pushed out of the system and liquidated. So we might think that there are too many colleges, in, in part because they can't try to reorganize. They, uh, they try to do out-of-court restructuring. They try to do academic reprioritization mm-hmm. exercises. They, uh, they create financial exigency plans, and they just limp along. Whereas uh, if they were able to file or there was, they thought there was a benefit to filing um, a Chapter 11, they might sort of get in the process. They might hire financial advisors and uh, attorneys to help them think about their reorganization. And, and, and they might find that once they're there, it turns out that they, they just realize they're not going to make a go of it. And so I, I think there's an argument to be made that sort of encouraging more filings would encourage college, college management to, to think more carefully about, uh, about their options, and, and some would find that they just can't make a go of it anymore. And, and one final sort of point of pushback, I suppose, is, you know, the higher educational industry, I guess the, case, the, the failures that have attracted most of our attention, like Corinthian Colleges, for example, or EDMC, or these for-profit institutions, and we do tend to think that, to look skeptically upon these institutions. Is that really who's mostly affected by these, or who else is affected that we might overlook by focusing solely on these really large for-profit institutions? The enterprises that tend to be able to, to restructure out of court are wealthier institutions, uh, are ones with larger endowments, right? So Sweetbriar College proposed closing while they still had almost a $100 million endowment. Wow. It, you know, and so that was restricted, but the, the, the trustees thought, like, you know, we will sort of sensibly plan for our winding down. Uh, and if we do have assets left over, we'll, uh, we'll transfer those to other enterprises that, you know, other colleges that will fulfill our charitable mission as well. You know, something like 85% of women's only colleges have stopped becoming women's only colleges. Now, that's whether that's because they've started admitting men or because they've closed or, or some other reason, um, they, they've struggled. HBCUs have struggled. And another example, perhaps, St. Paul's College was a teaching college in Lawrenceville, Virginia. It, it operated in Southern Virginia for about 125 years, historically black college. It always served, you know, predominantly poor folks from, from poor communities uh, without a lot of resources. And so it always had a small endowment, didn't have a lot of budgetary flexibility, and eventually it closed. They tried to facilitate a sale to another historically black college, St. Augustine's, and it was too much for St. Augustine's to uh, assume their 4 to $5 million in debt. You know, had St. Paul's been able to discharge that debt in bankruptcy, perhaps that would have facilitated the sale. So I think that you know it's certainly true that large for-profit colleges would benefit from changing the law. They are the most like other businesses, uh, and therefore, in some ways, it's the easiest to say, right, they, uh, they would benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there are a lot of small colleges that could also benefit. Uh, and also, I'll probably also say this about large for-profit colleges. Bankruptcy is not for the benefit of their management. Right? It, it is for the benefit of their creditors, their students, the communities these colleges are located in, the staff. Right? A recent study suggested that most students who attend colleges that close neither seek the discharge of their debt 
nor seek further student loans. So that means that most students who are at colleges that close just end up with a whole lot of debt and no degree. Wow. And as we know from research on student loan debt, that is really the worst combination. People with student loan debt and not without having received the degree. They, they've made an investment in their education. They've spent money on that, uh, and they've gotten they've gotten no credential in, in response. Uh, so they have non-dischargeable student loan debt. Should all these colleges stay open because students would be harmed? No, no, they shouldn't. Some of these colleges should still close, but the existing equity holders in these large for-profit colleges, bankruptcy is not for them, right? We're, we look at these entities and we're sometimes uh, upset with uh, their practices. Um, um, but, you know, in most uh, large organizations, equity gets nothing, right? They, they lose their equity and creditors get the, the new equity. And so I would really like to sort of reframe the, the narrative about who, who would benefit from restructuring even for-profit colleges. It would be um, students, it would be uh, communities, uh, it would be staff and workers more than it would be the, the prior owners. Matt, thanks so much for your time. Is there, uh, do you have any concluding remarks you'd like to make about uh, future scholarship or future research in this area that perhaps we should keep an eye on? Sure. Uh, again, thanks again so much for having me. I would say that if you're interested, the um, this fall's National Conference of Bankruptcy Judges conference out in Las Vegas. The ABI and the ABLJ will be hosting uh, jointly a symposium on bankruptcy and higher education uh, with myself, Bob Rasmussen, Dalia Jimenez, and Karen Gross. So we'll be talking about various aspects, uh, you know, student loans, uh, the colleges themselves, just all, all sorts of issues related to bankruptcy and higher education. Fantastic. Thank you for bringing that to our attention, and that'll be a great panel. Professor Bruckner, thank you so much for your time today. This is clearly an important subject and one that we will want to pay close attention to. Again, you may find links to Professor Bruckner's research in the ABI Newsroom, where you will also find links to nearly 200 other podcasts. Until next time, this is Drew Dawson, and thank you for listening to this edition of ABI Podcast.